Welcome to episode 206 of A Brief Chat for September 24th, 2021. I'm Jason Crane. Thanks so much for tuning in. Thank you to all the people who have recently become members, either as a result of this podcast or through my Vanarchism uh, travel project. You can go to patreon.com slash worldofjc, my initials, Jason Crane, uh, patreon.com slash worldofjc. And when you sign up there, you will get something for both this show and my podcast travels at every level. It's just one big Patreon for everything. And it will also house any future projects I create. So thank you to everyone who has done that uh, since the show relaunched. It's really, really exciting. I'm super happy to have the show back and have this vehicle to talk to people that I really find interesting and whose ideas I find really valuable. Lots of cool guests coming up in the weeks and months ahead. I've been assembling a list ever since I decided to bring the show back, and I think it's kind of a cool list, and I hope you agree. And don't forget... If either you yourself or somebody you know would be a good guest for this show, please let me know. You can just send an email to jason at abriefchat.com. That's jason at abriefchat.com. And we'll see if we can make it happen. A quick update about the van life side of things. My van's front driver's side wheel almost came off uh, on Friday the a week ago. And I ended up getting towed back to the small Vermont town where I've been hanging out. And uh, as I'm recording this intro this coming Thursday, but as you're listening to this yesterday, uh, I'm taking the vehicle to the garage and hopefully it'll be in and out on Thursday with either a new wheel or just new lugs, whichever is required. And I'll be able to start driving around again, making my plans to get back on the road full time, which is going to happen sometime in the next couple of months. And I'll keep you posted on that. Now, without further ado, let's move on to this week's conversation with my pal, Bob Sharkey. Bob Sharkey, welcome to A Brief Chat. Oh, it's great to be here, Jason. Thanks so much for uh, inviting me to your home. I was telling you before we started recording that this is the first face-to-face interview I've done with anyone in years, so it's nice to uh, nice to be back at it after this long, strange time. I feel honored and excited. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> I'm really excited to talk to you. Um, so you and I have known each other for more than a decade now through the the poetry scene in Albany, New York, which is roughly where we are right now. But just a few weeks ago, as it turns out, you also live across the street from my my cousin. And uh, a few weeks ago, I was visiting her, and you walked over to chat with us. And all of a sudden, you you opened up this entire period of your life that I didn't know anything about and that I was fascinated by. And this goes all the way back to your college days um, at a local college here. And so I thought maybe we could start there and just talk about those Siena College days and, and in particular – kind of when you were there and the and the presence of the military on campus in those days. Yeah. So, um, the, well, the favorite story I always like to start off with about going to Siena was uh, when I went to Siena and showed up for orientation, I guess, where you get your books and stuff. There was this one table and they said, uh, this is where you sign up for your uniform. And I said, What? What are you talking about? <laughs> and uh, they said, yeah, for ROTC. And I said, well, I didn't sign up for ROTC. And they said, well, didn't you read the catalog? ROTC is mandatory here for freshmen and sophomores. And I went, oh, my God, really? Of course, 
the context here was this is in the midst of the Vietnam War period. This, specifically, this would have been uh, 1966, and opposition against that war would heat up much more by 68 and later years. But in 66, I, I was pretty convinced I didn't want anything to do with the military. <laughs> so that's how, you know, it began. And it was really weird. You had to have a gun for marching uh, one, one afternoon a week uh, at ROTC. We had to march in formation with our rifles and present arms and all that kind of stuff. It was really weird for me. <laughs> did you, when you got to Siena, Siena is a Catholic college, right? Yes. Did yeah. you have, a, did you come from a, a pacifist family or what, had you just arrived on your own at the I don't want to be in Vietnam idea? Yeah, not, not so much a pacifist family. I had uh, a couple uncles that were religious, but... I had actually kind of come from a whole different angle. As a kid growing up, I was an avid reader of books about the Civil War and I guess other wars. And I was really into military strategy. And I had uh, specifically read this book by a name, a guy named, I think his name was Herman Kahn, about, I think it was called The Third World War. And one big theme in his book was you never want to get involved in a land war in Asia because of China. And basically his theory was that, you know, you could bring in everything possible, but China is just so overwhelming in terms of population that you're never going to be able to conquer them or do anything to kind of really gain traction over there. So I, I kind of like in the back of my mind, I was already opposed to the war on, on like common sense strategic grounds, if that makes sure. any sense. Yeah. And then at Siena, as I got more involved uh, with some of the, the, the priests there that were uh, very active in anti-war and into pacifism and that kind of thing, and I studied that a little bit more, I did become just generally opposed to the idea of war or fighting and that kind of thing. And uh, so eventually that led to me being uh, demonstrably opposed to the mandatory ROTC <laughs> and <laughs> taking certain actions and on campus. And um, so, so let's talk about that. When you, yeah. when you came to that position, what did you decide to do? The main thing we did... Uh, you know, we some of us just acted out, I guess you could put it. We kind of refused to march or they gave us, you know, we had coursework, which actually was interesting. <laughs> because, again, my, my interest in military strategy, yeah. they, they had all these great uh, uh, military history textbooks. And I thought, well, this is really interesting. But then when it came time for the test, I would goof off and very poorly and kind of walk out in the middle of a test or whatever. Other other kids from their windows would play Jimi Hendrix and stuff on March Day, which was really great, and kind of try to disrupt it that way. Uh, the main thing we did in a serious fashion, um, and I was a leader in this, we did a lot of research and, and organized to get 
ROTC made voluntary. And we actually succeeded in doing that. Too late for us, but I think by our junior, certainly by our senior year, incoming freshmen no longer had to uh, sign up for ROTC. And uh, it was still a big presence on campus, but it was voluntary. <clears throat> was mandatory ROTC a common thing in those days? Well, uh, yeah, I actually did a lot of research on that, and it it had been, and it was decreasing. It was something that was kind of dying out, and uh, I actually, I guess I was the main researcher and uh, presented all those facts, listed the schools that had ROTC and how many had mandatory and if it was still mandatory, and basically made the argument that, especially in light of what was going on in the world, it was something, in being a Catholic college, a Christian college or whatever, it didn't really make a lot of sense. And so that's, and then uh, a lot of the other um, faculty, the faculty members came from that angle that supported us saying, you know, this is a Catholic school, what are we doing here? You know, it's, you know, sending, yeah. sending, forcing people to study war and military and that kind of thing. And we should be doing the opposite. We should, and, and Siena eventually did. Uh, I don't know too much about it, but they eventually form, formed a peace institute or something over there. Yeah, so that was great. I mean, I, I had a real sense of accomplishment that we were able to do that. Um, interestingly, when when I started at Siena, so that would have been 1966, it was predominantly... Um, a, a school for uh, kids that lived in this area. Okay. They 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 didn't have the number of dormitories they have today. I think today it's predominantly uh, like most colleges. It's predominantly you know kids going away to school and living in a dorm and that kind of thing. And those of us who did that, I came from Maine and lived in a dorm, so we were kind of pioneers. But most of the kids from this area, it was all male at that time, too, which is another thing that changed while we were there. Most of them went to uh, Catholic military high schools in the area. Oh, wow. So uh, there was LaSalle and Christian Brothers Academy, which are still kind of military-oriented high schools. So, you know, for them, it was like, oh, well, you know, this is what we've done all through all through high school, sure. you know, we 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 polish our shoes and shine our buttons and use march and rank and, and file. And march yeah. and rank and file. <laughs> What's the big deal? Right. You know? And and uh, so there was a big cultural thing going on there too, kind of underlying everything, which was interesting. That surprises me that that tight link between. Catholic schools and and military schools. I mean, yeah. I I know Catholicism spans everything from you know Father Coughlin to the Berrigan brothers, yeah. and that's a pretty wide spectrum. But at the same time, it you like to think that at least the public facing part of Catholic education is not all about militarism. But I'm I'm surprised to learn about how close that relationship was. Yeah, uh, it was very close. Um... I don't know whether Siena got, they probably did get some money from the army for uh, having ROTC on their campus. Um, their ROTC battalion, 
to this day remains an integral part of the school. I mean, it's all voluntary, but kids that go to college there still are uh, members of that. And, um, you know, the Army supplied the faculty and that sort of thing, but they probably gave the school a chunk of money for use of the buildings and the facilities and that sort of thing, I would guess. But, um, you know, back then, uh, I remember, I forget who the cardinal in New York City was at the time, but he was, like, very close to the military. I mean, and that's why sometimes they had trouble speaking out against the war, because uh, they had those close ties with the military. And my uncle, who um, was a Jesuit, um, when we used to visit him in in Massachusetts when I was a little kid, I have I have this memory that at this Jesuit place, there was attached to it there was an, some kind of Air Force research facility, <laughs> and there were all these Air Force trucks, and That's I never so I never did get the 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 full exact story of what that was all about. But it was definitely there. <laughs> that is wild. Just so, so not what I think about what I yeah. think about those institutions. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, the institutional church, they had to think about money and, sure. uh, you know, power, power, how they were going to exert power in the world and keep their status and their funding coming in. And I'm sure, I'm sure that place. In in Massachusetts was getting money from the Air Force for yeah. f, you know funneled in for whatever. It's like a lot of colleges get research money for you know from chemical companies or whatever for doing yeah. doing kinds of research. So it comes in from the military too, at different places or did anyhow. You mentioned some of the Siena faculty coming out on your side. I'm curious about what the response from the administration yeah. was. Were they were they shocked when you guys first started saying we don't want to have to do, be forced to do this? Um it it took them a while to come around. Uh, I mean, we had demonstrations. We shut down the main building over there, chained it shut actually at one point. A bunch of us went out on route 9 and Block traffic, and I still remember blocking traffic and a colony cop coming at us with a baton and a trucker coming at us with a tire iron. Wow! So we didn't we didn't stay there very long. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I mean, we caused a lot of disruption. Um, I think it became a we made it kind of a headache for them to continue having it. I don't know. And, you know, the times were changing. You did have growing opposition to the war by 1968 when um, that's when they would have made the decision to make it voluntary. But that really became the high point of opposition against the war, as I recall. The Vietnam War at that point had gotten very bad and um, you know, people like Walter Cronkite were coming out on the news saying how awful it was. Yeah, the thing about if we if I've lost Cronkite, I've lost the nation. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of and even some religious types um, 
probably not the cardinal there, but others were speaking out against it. Uh, Martin Luther King gave a very impassioned speech uh, about the Vietnam War and why it needed to end. A lot of newspapers, I remember my newspaper back in Portland, Maine, came out with very impassioned, uh, detailed editorials uh, against the war and all the reasons we shouldn't be there and that sort of thing. By that point, kids we we personally knew that didn't go to college, that went right into the military, were coming back and telling us about it and what it was like and basically, some, in some instances, advising us not to go, yeah. you know, for ver- various reasons. So... So I want to um, continue on to kind of the second part of this story, which is that it's important uh, for folks, especially you know folks younger than me. But I, I grew up without a draft, and but at this time yeah. there was a draft. There was oh, yes. you know man- <laughs> mandatory conscription in the military, and so uh, it, you didn't just have to go to war because you signed up to go. You had to go if they told you to go. Yeah, and so when. When it came time for you to be told to go, you became a conscientious objector. And can you can you talk about that? Yeah, they had a lottery actually. By the time I was going to graduate from college, so when you, when you're in college, you got an, ex- an exemption. But as soon as you left college or high school, if you weren't going on to college, unless you had some kind of other deferment because of illness or whatever. You were put into the draft, but uh, so by let me think now. So um, so by 1970, it would have been that would have been my year uh, to hit the draft. They had started this lottery system because they didn't really need everyone. So they put your birth dates in uh, some kind of thing, and they didn't shake them up too well. So. <laughs> I was uh, I was a December baby, and the December ones went in last, and they didn't really shake them up. So when they start pulling them out, if you were born at the end of the year, you got shafted. So sure enough, I got number three was my draft lottery number. So I started to think seriously after that, what the heck do I do? I wasn't, I wasn't like, uh, I didn't have a history of conscientious objection. I wasn't a, a Quaker. I didn't belong to a religious group. But uh, And just to clarify for folks who don't know about this, in other words, these were, you have to prove why you're a conscientious objector. Yeah. And if you have this background, yeah. it just makes it easier to make it. It makes case, it right? easier. And um, <clears throat> it was kind of difficult, actually, if you didn't have that background to make the case. Um uh, and but I and I didn't know what to do. I thought, well, do I, you know, do I try to join the Coast Guard or something? This is before I knew the Coast Guard was using Coast Guard cutters to patrol the rivers in Vietnam. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't quite the uh, get out of jail free card. That no, it, <laughs> that it seemed. But uh, I think I actually went to a recruiting office and they, you know, they just saw me. I was wearing glasses and just said, we don't need anyone that doesn't have perfect <laughs> sight. I said, get the heck out of here. So um, so I, I ended up, I had I had talked to a number of people and uh, my friend Stephen Tobias, who I eventually ended up naming a poetry contest for him, he uh, had been in Vietnam and 
in, in no uncertain terms, do not go over there. Do whatever you have to do. Go up to Canada, which a lot of people were doing at that time. Do not go. And uh, so I decided to pursue the conscientious objection route. And I actually met with, uh, there was a friend's meeting house in Albany, and I went there, and they provided a lot of guidance and sat me down and talked to me. And there was a, a Quaker back in, in Portland, Maine. My, even though I was living here, my draft board was still in Portland, Maine. Okay. So, and he provided a lot of counseling, too. And I met with him a few times. And, and basically... Um, you know, it 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 was kind of like you know, say this and don't say that. You know, kind of like what to say and just stick to your beliefs and be sincere about it. Now, the history here was my local draft board in Maine had never granted conscientious objector status before, and actually had sent some kids that had refused to go and tried that route, didn't succeed. And who two of them were actually friends of my friend Stephen, probably or motivated by by him also, ended up at Danbury Correctional Facility because they just were convicted of evading their draft. But I persisted, and uh, I had a lot of support, a lot of letters from priests at Siena and Stephen Tobias and his his parents actually, and and other people that knew me and you know could say what a wonderful person I was. <laughs> I'd never heard a fly and all that kind of thing. Right. <laughs> uh, but by then I was really serious about it to the point where I kind of horrified my parents, especially my mother, because I said, I am, you know, I'll go to prison rather than go get involved in, in, in the military of Vietnam. And she was like, oh... Uh, we had to carry her down the steps when I made that announcement. But anyhow, it it was a big hassle. The the draft board, the local draft board, turned me down. I appealed that. They had the whole appeals process. I appealed it. The state board found unanimously in my favor. And I figured, oh, great, this is it, this is it. And uh, But the local board was allowed to appeal that. So the, all the paperwork and everything had to go to Washington. They had a national appeals board run out of the United States uh, Attorney General's office. And it took a while, but eventually I said, yeah, you know, this kid's sincere, based on all the evidence and the testimony by people. And that was it. And then... Uh, eventually, I ended up working at Albany Medical Center for a couple of years, which was essentially kind of the service you were assigned yeah. to in lieu of the military. Yeah, you had to do all alternate service or alternative service, which is a whole story in itself. Um, <laughs> Feel free to tell that story. <laughs> I had all these ideals about oh, it'd be great to work on it. Indian Reservation, or back, that's what they were called back then. Sure. They weren't referred to as the Indian nations. Yeah. Or the... Indigenous people. Indigenous or, yeah. people nations, or whatever they are now. Uh, anyhow, you had to give three choices. So, And they said, uh, never put your first choice first. So I put that down. I think I put the U.S. Public Health Service down, and I put Albany Medical Center, and they decided Albany Medical Center would be fine for this kid. 
So basically, the conscientious objectors, and there were quite a few there by then, so this would have been 1971, so I was there between July of 71 and July of 73. They gave you, you know, kind of like the hard, hard labor type jobs for the most part, although some, some, some of the young guys were uh, orderlies and that kind of thing where they had to deal with the, the patients, the gross functions of patient care. Sure. And uh, I got assigned to housekeeping department a guy was a houseman, and we were in charge of removing uh, dirty laundry and trash from the medical center, huge medical center. If people aren't familiar with it. They probably had about 800 beds at the time. And so those jobs were, were pretty hard. I mean, they were, they were, they were hard jobs. Um, couple of the guys actually worked in the laundry. They had to sort out the laundry, the the laundry from the the pads and the bloodstained stuff and everything was they had the grossest job by far in the whole medical center. Um, now the thing that uh, I found really disheartening was um, a lot of the folks that I worked with were were black guys. And among them, several of them were Vietnam veterans, and they ended up doing the same job as us conscientious objectors. Um, so I, that always bothered me, obviously. Um, and some of them tried to get better jobs at the medical center, but, you know, there was still a lot of racism. Well, there still is racism, but back then, it was really, really built into the system. Um, it was very hard for people who were not white to, to have certain positions. I remember, and I ended up back at the medical center uh, and did another more than two-year stint a few years later because I didn't have a job. I went to graduate school, came out, no job. It was a recession. I went to library school. The libraries were laying people off. They weren't hiring. Marianne and I got pregnant, and uh, I had to have a job. And the medical center happily took me back. And they, they put me in housekeeping, but they gave me a clean job in the, in the linen service where I delivered the clean linen. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask you about um, the reaction of people around you to your yeah. CO status. Because yeah. to me, when you... Obviously, I already liked you. I liked you as a poet and a person, but I didn't know anything about all of this until yeah. a few weeks ago. Yeah. And when you told me, uh, I hope this sounds the way I intended to sound, but my my level of respect for you just climbed even higher. It make I don't mean to make it sound like yeah. it was low before. I just yeah, mean yeah. it was already high and it went higher because to me, that's a heroic act. Mm. But I'm I know, of course. I mean, I've read stories of other conscientious <clears throat> objectors in other wars. Although in wars that were more popular at home than Vietnam eventually yeah. became, and you know a lot of those people were really, really belittled by other people mm. and, and made to, uh, you know, the, the, their families were ashamed, things like that. So I'm just curious about how the people in your life reacted to you choosing this. Yeah, um, most people. Uh, well, actually, when I first started working at the medical center, one of the guys on my crew was was an actual Quaker. 
And he said to me, he took me aside, and he said, okay, this is the story. Some people are going to hate you. Some people are going to love you. Most people won't care, <laughs> which I found to be pretty much true. For life in general. Yeah, for life all in general, throughout, yeah. and certainly certainly for that. I, no question about it. I, You know, there was, it's, and then as I met people later on, there were a number of people that were like, whoa, it's really kind of impressive, got way to go. I didn't, I got, you know, I met a few people uh, that had problems. I, I wouldn't say anyone in my family or that I was really close to had any problem. I, so your folks came around even after oh, the yeah, initial shock? They came. Yeah. yeah, my dad actually helped. He actually tracked down and found the, the, the Quaker lawyer back in in Portland that helped us a lot. And he did a lot of work, actually a lot of legwork on the appeals with the state draft board, I you know I think he he was a lifelong Democrat. I think he tried to use some of his yeah. some of his ties to the Democratic Party maybe to pull a few strings or whatever. Was your dad know. a veteran? He was a veteran. You know his initial reaction, which was typical of a lot of veterans and certainly of the guys on the draft board. When I went to meet, you know, we were in World War II. Big deal. Suck it up and get over there. Yeah. You know, it's it's something you're supposed to do. But he came around. I mean, again, as time wore on, even even folks like that were becoming opposed to the war. And even when I met with my draft board, I mean, I think one of the guys on the draft board, they were all World War II vets. And one of them said, I don't like this nasty war either, but this is our job. We have to decide who to send over there. And, you know, we can't we can't just say you don't go and we send someone else. So, yeah. I mean, I could see that point of view, actually. Yeah. So, and who's to say, you know, we got through it. Um Kind of a kind of a funny. I don't know if it's funny, ironic, or maddening, but I ended up working at the state social services department, and one of the guys that worked there had been hired ahead of me, so he had already several years in, and he actually started. That was his alternative service somehow or other. Wow. <laughs> he, he, he was a bureaucrat. <laughs> in the state agency and I'm going well that doesn't seem right <laughs> that's right I was carrying dirty linens with that <laughs> as your as your life went on did that did that decision ever come come back in any way I, whether it was talking to your kids about it or did it did it have repercussions on activism that you did later or mm. did it did it ever kind of reappear in your life in any way you know I, i've always looked askance at most of our military adventures around the world I, i'll say that i haven't been as active in the anti-war movement as some people um in terms of marching around or carrying signs and that sort of thing kind of did it in my own quiet way as the years went by, I think my my pacifism actually became stronger. Um, I was really happy that my son didn't have to face the draft and all that, and as was he. <laughs> I'm quite sure, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, he, I, I would say my kids grew up with those values too. 
Well, the the repercussion of your decision about which I am happiest is that uh, you are still here, which yeah. seems like there's some chance that that might not have been the case had you had to go. And I'm so glad we got to have uh, this conversation. I've been talking with uh, wonderful poet Bob Sharkey. Thanks so much for taking the time to tell oh. me these stories. I think it's really important. You're welcome. That was great. Thank <laughs> you.